Welcome to the Philosophy of Now podcast on Roots Media. Today we speak with Dr. Fridjof Kopra, an Austrian-born American theoretical physicist, philosopher, and systems thinker. The author of famous books such as The Turning Point and Tao of Physics, he was a pioneer of integrating Eastern philosophy into Western science. Today, he concentrates more on eco-literacy and the involvement of various scientific paradigms into one worldview. We begin with his journey and end with his philosophy of now. Recording, Professor. Thank you for making time to uh, be on the podcast. The pleasure. Um, so we've been uh, exploring your work for the past few years, and particularly somebody who's a student of physics definitely knows your approach and uh, revolutionary input in the theoretical physics world. So before we before we get into there and how you've really um, transitioned. Can you speak a little bit to your journey into science and growing up in Europe and how you approached physics as a young student? Yes, well, uh, I grew up in Austria and uh, my mother was a poet and my father was a lawyer and an amateur philosopher. He had a fairly large library of philosophy books mainly German philosophers, but, but also books about Buddhist philosophy. And so uh, around the dinner table in our home, when I was a child, uh, there was a lot of talk about art and philosophy. I grew up in Innsbruck in the Alps, which is just north of Italy. And uh, during my childhood, when I was a teenager, we always went to Italy for vacation. So I experienced the, you know, Renaissance art and the Baroque art of Italy oh, wow. you know, as, as a teenager. So, so my background there was, you know, art and philosophy. But a major influence was a mathematics teacher in high school who was very enthusiastic. His name was Peter Lesky. He became a well-known mathematician after teaching high school. And he uh, instilled in us students, especially in a small group who were gifted for mathematics, a real passion for mathematics. And uh, so when I went to university in Innsbruck, I wanted to become a mathematician and I inscribed myself for mathematics with the physics minor. Mm. And then interestingly, my first course at university in calculus in, in mathematics was taught by a very boring teacher, <laughs> you know, terrible teacher. And uh, the theoretical physics course was taught by a very flamboyant professor, full of enthusiasm, so again, under the influence of those two teachers, I switched from mathematics to physics, physics, theoretical physics major and mathematics minor. So then I uh, transferred to Vienna for my graduate work. And there the main influence during my student years 
was the classic book by Werner Heisenberg, which is called Physics and Philosophy. And so I became very interested in the philosophy in the conceptual revolution that happened in quantum physics during the first three decades of the century. Now, reading this book as a young student at the age of you know, 19 or 20, I could understand only about half of it maybe, but it stayed with me through my career and I read it again and again. And it really determined my whole career as a scientist and writer, because what Heisenberg explains in this book, among many other things, is that science and philosophy in the West has been dominated by the Cartesian mechanistic worldview. And he said, quantum physics shows us a very different view. And then he added, it will take a long time for society to change and to adopt, adopt this radically new vision of reality. And so that was, you know, the seed that was sown in my mind at, at that age of 20. Well, first I had to study physics, I had to get my degree and everything. But then, uh, you know, uh, later on, uh, when I was 30, I, I started to come back to Heisenberg. And that was the time when I became interested in Eastern philosophy. Those were the 1960s. And, you know, the Beatles went to India and, and everybody was doing, you know, yoga, meditation, psychedelic drugs. And by that time I was in California as a postdoc and uh, very much influenced by, by Eastern philosophy. I read the Bhagavad Gita and I read books about Zen Buddhism. And almost immediately, I discovered some parallels between the basic concepts of those Eastern philosophies and what I had read in Heisenberg's book. And so I began to, to you know, research these parallels and wrote a few articles about them. And then in 1975, published my first book, The Tao of Physics. So that was the sort of background of the Tao of Physics. That's right. Yeah. Wow, so um, this is a very non-traditional journey for a physicist, especially coming up around the age when um, thinkers like Heisenberg have really left their imprint and quantum mechanics in theoretical physics is taking a lead. Yes. Um, so did you experience any struggles or um, backlash from other scientists within physics? Because that's usually a thing when you break the paradigm and start thinking totally different as opposed to the construct. Uh, yes, abs absolutely. Well, uh, the, first, uh, the first experience was of a very practical nature because um, at the time when I wrote the Tao of Physics, I was in London and I did my physics research at Imperial College in, in the, under Abdus Salam. And... Uh, when I started to, to uh, write about physics and Eastern philosophy, um, you know, Salam told me that he was very sorry, but he couldn't support that because, you know, the physics grants were not given for studying Eastern philosophy. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I had to leave Imperial College and, and I was unemployed 
you know, while I was writing the Tao of Physics, I was supporting myself, uh, teaching high school, uh, doing technical translations, German being my native language, so I did translations from English to German. And, uh, you know, it took uh, quite a while until I got an advance from a publisher, which then financed the actual writing of the book. Wow. But I went through quite a bit of hardship in those years. I, I dropped out of physics. And then I got back into physics once the book was published. I then moved back to California. And then I started a long collaboration with Jeffrey Chu, the um, creator of, uh, you know, largely S-matrix theory and uh, bootstrap physics. And after Heisenberg, Chu was my second big mentor. And I, I worked with him for about 10 years at, at Berkeley. Wow. Uh, you, you spoke to how your parents had uh, interest. Maybe, um, um, Raghav, uh, I should also answer your question about, about uh, you know, being attacked or not appreciated by physicists when I wrote the Tao of Physics. That was also true. Uh, and what happened there was uh, that I had been in contact with leading physicists while I was writing the book, because as you know, part of the book is a review of modern physics, of mm. you know, quantum mechanics and relativity theory and field theory and so on. And so I was in contact with physicists who had written popular books about physics, uh, like Victor Weisskopf, for instance, and others. And they appreciated my ability to uh, present the concepts of modern physics to a lay audience. Mm. And they knew from their own experience that this is not easy. And uh, I did it well. And uh, Although most of those physicists didn't buy the connection to Eastern mysticism, they realized that what I was saying about physics was completely correct. Nobody has ever pointed out any error in physics in, in this book. You know, it's, it's, it's all uh, properly done. Uh, they, they didn't buy the connection with mysticism, but I can tell you that after the book was published, in the years and decades, there was a whole generation, um, in fact, I could say two generations of books modeled after the Tao of physics by physics colleagues and also other scientists and philosophers. So eventually that part uh, became recognized also, but not in the beginning. Wow, um, I can tell you it's influenced my approach to physics and appreciation for um, whatever theory we learn in the modern era. Uh, but you, you spoke to how some educators and your parents influenced, particularly educators for physics and your parents' interest in Buddhism and Eastern philosophies affected you. Is there particular experiences you remember of maybe traveling um, and meeting someone who you felt had some wisdom or uh, reading a book where it totally shifted the well, way approached science? Uh, it, uh, it was again, you know, a, a curious connection via the arts. As I mentioned, my mother was a poet. 
And when I was um, around 18 or 20, she gave me a book by Lawrence Ferlinghetti called uh, A Coney Island of the Mind. It's one of his most famous collection of poetry. So Ferlinghetti was part of a generation of poets in San Francisco uh, known as the Beat Generation in the 1950s. And those books were about a you know, non-conventional bohemian lifestyle, psychedelics also, poetry, uh, sex, and uh, great interest in Eastern philosophy, mm. especially in Buddhism. Now, other, other poets were Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, and, and there were, were others, uh, Allen Ginsberg and others. So in the early 1960s, I read Ferlinghetti and then I read all these other poets and that's what got me interested in Eastern mysticism, Eastern philosophy. That's mm -hmm. when I started, uh, you know, doing yoga and other forms of meditation. And then the first actual Eastern text I read was the Bhagavad Gita. Wow. And that was a tremendous influence. That really showed me a new way of seeing the world and, and deeply impressed me. That must have been around... Uh, 1966 in Paris. Wow. I was on a postdoc in Paris. That's when I read the Bhagavad Gita. Wow. Um, you spoke to how the arts had really influenced your interest in that direction. And now in secondary and post-secondary science education, there is a push for including the arts in STEM fields. Um, often it's for namesake, but do you feel like there is some credit and um, validity to the fact that the arts should be included when teaching the nature of science or science? To yeah, absolutely. I, I feel about that very strongly. And, and as you know, I left physics in the mid uh, 1980s. And, you know, after having written another book called The Turning Point, where I expanded yeah. my focus from physics to other areas, and so in the mid 80s, I shifted my focus from physics to the life sciences. And during the 30 years following that, I developed a synthesis of a new systemic understanding of life uh, based originally on general systems theory and cybernetics, and then on complexity theory and newer theories. Uh, and, and I call my, my synthesis the systems view of life. And I actually published various books about it, including yeah. this uh, textbook. That's the latest one, correct? The systems view of life, uh, co-authored by Pierluigi Luisi. And so I call it the systems view of life because it is all ba a view of life based on patterns and relationships. And this kind of thinking, which is also the thinking of quantum physics, is now known as systemic thinking or, or uh, systems thinking. Now, when you talk about understanding the world in patterns, in terms of patterns and relationships, uh, you cannot measure relationships. Mm. You cannot quantify relationships. You have to visualize and map them. And whenever visualizing and mapping is in the foreground, 
also throughout the history of science, uh, artists have contributed significantly to the advancement of science. Absolutely. The biggest example is perhaps Leonardo da Vinci in, yeah. in the Italian Renaissance, but also the German poet Goethe uh, made uh, significant contributions to biology in his study of patterns. And so the arts can be a tremendous help here because if you think about it, whether you talk about painting or theater or music or, or other forms of arts, it's all about pattern. Mm. You know, it's about the pattern of a composition in a painting, uh, the pattern of a melody in a piece of music, uh, the pattern of drama, of plot in, in theater. It's all about pattern. And so the arts can be a tremendous help and should be included especially in the teaching of this systemic understanding of life because they can be a tremendous help. Hmm. So that's interesting because it, often you can speak to this more than I can, but do you feel that science comes into the picture of human history during the Enlightenment as like an anti-dogma view of life? And now it right. seems like the inability to incorporate art, the inability <clears throat> to be open-minded to an Eastern worldview is also like dogmatic in some way. Yes. Well, that's, I think, uh, that's a, a condition of, of the human mind that mm. we, uh, we tend to hang on to fixed ideas, you know, fixed concepts, fixed ideas. Even, even people who are revolutionary in their work in science, once they have made their contribution, they <coughs> are not the best to take the next step further, to go beyond their, mm. their theories. Right. So we have this, and that's <coughs> an old uh, human problem. If you remember, you will know um, in the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha had these four noble truths. And he said, the first truth is suffering. And we suffer psychologically and spiritually because we have the tendency to cling to fixed ideas. So suffering and clinging are the, the first two noble truths. And, and so uh, this, this is a challenge to remain fluid and open to new ideas. You just spoke to the noble truth in uh, Buddhism, Sarvam Dukkham. And going back to how you reference the Bhagavad Gita as one of the first texts that uh, really moved you. How did you get exposed to it and what particularly about it moved you? <clears throat> what, what moved me uh, was the instruction of Krishna, the divinity to the warrior Arjuna, this is a very dramatic scene, you know, in a battlefield mm. where first it's all about war and battles, but that recedes then and it becomes a, about life and existence and philosophy and, and so on. And, and Krishna teaches Arjuna the, the truth of action without desire. Mm. And that hit me like, uh, you know, a, a lightning. You know, I had never heard this before, and and 
to act uh, with a purpose, yes, but without being attached to the end result. Uh, purpose, action without desire. There were many other things in, in the Gita that, that influenced me and, and impressed me, but that was the sort of aha experience, the main, wow. the main moment. Uh, so you, this doesn't, you don't have to speak to this if uh, you feel like it's not appropriate, but has that influenced your, whether it's the Bhagavad Gita or Zen Buddhism, your personal spiritual practice and how you approached your day to day? Uh, yes, yes, it has. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was equally attracted to Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism. And and when I wrote the Tao Physics, those were you know the traditions that I uh, discussed. And uh, I wrote you. You may not know that I I wrote the book before I ever went to India. Wow. So, so I was, I read books, you know, and, and again, I was very much influenced by art. There's a beautiful book about Indian art by Heinrich Zimmer, big coffee table book with all these, you know, Shiva statues and beautiful paintings and everything. So that, that was one I, I studied very much. But anyway, when I went to India first in 1980 and then in 1982 and then later on several times, uh, <clears throat> when I went to Hindu temples, I realized that I could never be a Hindu hmm. because this is so uh, culturally defined, you know, the practice of Hinduism. Uh, I, I realized I, I couldn't follow that tradition, although I was very attracted to it. Uh, you know, intellectually, but the actual practice, uh, although I love to watch it, but it, I could never do it, you know. Uh, whereas Buddhism uh, is not so culturally conditioned. And of course, Buddhism traveled, you know, from right. India to Sri Lanka and north to China, Japan and around the world. And so, uh, I, I was able much more to relate to Buddhism in my daily life. And there I also had a, uh, an experience in Sri Lanka where I went to Buddhist temples. This was in 1982. I went to Buddhist temples and to puja festivals and so on. And I also had discussions with uh, you know, Buddhist monks and Buddhist teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realized that in the West, uh, we, we often have the tendency to see Buddhist practice as meditation. Right. But in fact, that's only one of the eight precepts of the Buddha. It's the last one. Absolutely. It starts with right seeing, right speaking, right livelihood. So it, it uh, connects with your entire life. And that's... That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to live in, in this way as much as possible. And then also from the very beginning, I was very interested in Taoism. And I began to practice Tai Chi in, in London in the 1970s. And I still do. I, I, I had you know, gaps where I stopped my Tai Chi practice, but then I picked it up again. And for the last 10 or 20 years, I've been practicing Tai Chi as, as a as my practice of meditation. So 
you know, I, I um, tried out various things of these traditions and, and ended up with, let's say, uh, you know, a, a Buddhist lifestyle in, in the sense of Buddhist ethics, if you wish, and a Tai Chi practice. Um, you spoke to how, whether it was Buddhism or the Bhagavad Gita, there is this idea of becoming a person who speaks the truth, speaks good, does good, and then eventually it leads one to the path of a serious contemplative practice. Now, is that where the inspiration for our system's view of life comes from? Or is there something else you think the Eastern view can... Um, was is the Eastern use the foundation of the systems you have life that you propagated? Uh, well, no, I think I I moved away from from my interest in Eastern philosophy over the years. Okay. And although I, you know, it's still as valid for me as it was from the beginning. Uh, I also uh, became interested in, uh, in a Western equivalence, especially in the philosophical school of deep ecology. And <clears throat> I see ecology as an ideal bridge between science and spirituality, equally valid to, to Eastern traditions. Mm. And, and uh, so uh, I would say the system's view of life was more is more science-based with certainly an influence of Eastern traditions. And in fact, my co-author, Pierluigi Luisi, is in a group of scientists that have, who have regular discussions with the Dalai Lama. And so he's also very interested in Buddhism. Wow. And uh, one scientist who influenced both of us very much is Francisco Varela. Mm, who, yes. who was a Chilean biologist and a practicing Buddhist. So, you know, the Buddhist influence has persisted. But on the whole, I would say uh, I'm not, not so much turned toward the East uh, anymore. Okay. Do, do, you, do you feel after the Tao of physics and the past couple decades, the approach of many young uh, scientists is not as aggressive um, as was the wave against you when you'd first started and written about Eastern mysticism. Oh, yes, absolutely. Because as I said, uh, you know, there are about a dozen books now about physics and philosophy, physics and Eastern philosophy, physics and mysticism and so on. So, so those ideas have spread and also um, the whole uh, value system and philosophy of the 1960s of the hippie movement has mm. spread into the mainstream. Right. So, um, for instance, uh, uh, if you were a businessman or woman in the 1960s and uh, had a business meeting and uh, were planning something or a group was planning to do something next week. And you had said, well, on Wednesday, I can't because on Wednesday, I have my yoga class or my Qigong practice. Hmm. People would have looked at you as cans and, and laughed or, or even thrown you out, you know. Oh. 
but now it's sort of standard. No, no, nobody yeah. you know, blinks an eye when you say on, on, on Tuesday I have my yoga practice. So, so that has uh, permeated in, in society. And with it, of course, also the comparison between science and, and mysticism is now much more accepted than it was, than it was you know, 40 years ago. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting because there's accounts of Heisenberg or Schrodinger writing about their readings of the Upanishads. Yes. They've read the Upanishads and they've commented on it, but it's very convenient for the <clears throat> academic mind to almost disregard that part of their lives. Yeah, and it was not only Heisenberg and, and uh, uh, Bohr, uh, it was also, uh, you know, Oppenheimer and uh, uh, other, other physicists, so that's true. Yeah. Um, you, you just spoke of Varela and uh, in his uh, book, The Ethical Know-How, he, it's not necessarily a science and mysticism parallel, but he basically argues about how the Eastern approach to even um, ethics is completely different. And it, it's more of a state of being than it is a calculated decision making in the uh, like trolley example per se. Yeah. So, um, it, is that an evolution of thought that maybe uh, you pioneered through the Tao of physics or there were other contemporary scientists working on similar views of life? Uh, no, I think, I think it is something I pioneered and I know that uh, Varela became interested in Buddhism when he met the Dalai Lama. Wow. And, and that was in 1983. And I know this because, because this was at a conference in Austria in which I participated wow. in an Austrian village called Altbach. And the conference was called Alternative Realities. And it had a stellar cast of participants. Uh, the Dalai Lama, Francisco Varela, uh, David Bohm, Rupert wow. Sheldrake, uh Richard Baker Roshi and and you know many other Pierluigi Luisi was there also and so this is uh when Varela I think and the Dalai Lama uh founded this Mind and Life Institute or maybe shortly afterwards to have dialogues between scientists and and Buddhists wow but uh, at the time, in 1983, of course, this was eight years after the publication of the Tao of Physics. So all the people at the conference knew the Tao of Physics. So you, you <clears throat> spoke about how you've kind of moved on from discussing the parallels of Eastern mysticism and uh, modern science. What exactly do you see as your vision as an activist when you talk about a systems view of life? Yeah, well, let me first tell you why I moved away from physics. Uh, I, at the very end of the Tao of Physics, in the epilogue, I observe that, that our society is really not consistent with this worldview of modern physics, mm. because society, in terms of business, uh, uh, healthcare, politics, uh, environment, and so on, is still organized around a mechanistic reductionist worldview. And, and so we have to move on. So in my second book, The Turning Point, 
I expanded my focus and studied, you know, other areas like biology, medicine, economics, management, and so on. And while I was writing this book, I realized that all these issues had to do with life, mm -hmm. whether you talk about economics or health or, or, or ecology, it has to do with individual organisms, social systems and ecosystems. And so my, my focus shifted from physics to the life sciences. Okay. And so that's when I became interested in systems theory and complexity theory and ecology and so on. Understood. So, so I, I forgot your, your question now because I, I wanted to add this. What? Uh, no, no worries. That's great that you added that. I, I was just asking um, whether you, your role as an activist when you speak of the systems you have life, like what? Yeah, well, the, my main point as an activist is that the major problems of our time are all systemic problems, which means that they're all interconnected and interdependent. Whether you talk about uh, energy, the environment, uh, healthcare, uh, management, climate change, uh, uh, racism, uh, economic inequality, and even now the COVID pandemic. Right. None of these problems can be understood and addressed in isolation. They're all interconnected and they need systemic thinking to be understood and solved. And so um, the systems view of life is not only fascinating to me intellectually, but has you know very concrete example and in fact uh, concrete applications and in fact in our textbook we devote 60 pages to discussing so-called systemic solutions solutions that solve not a problem in isolation but always in connection with other problems and in context with other problems so that that's my main point as an activist Right. So could, could you give us an example or like a preview of a possible solution that you... Yeah, well, uh, a systemic solution uh, addresses uh, an individual problem within the context of other problems. And mm -hmm. as a consequence, it very often solves several problems at the same time. Okay. So an example, for, for instance, in agriculture, if we uh, shifted from our uh, system of industrial agriculture, which is highly centralized, energy intensive, and uh, you know, chemical, um, to uh, a kind of uh, sustainable, community-oriented, regenerative agriculture, also known as agroecology, this would have major consequences First, it, it would contribute uh, to our energy problems because agroecology doesn't have the huge energy input that, that industrial agriculture has. Secondly, the organically grown food is much healthier and would have a tremendous effect on public health. Uh, thirdly, uh, an organic soil is a living soil, which means that it is full of carbon which it draws down from the atmosphere. 
and in this way helps to alleviate climate change. So these are three major issues. Wow. It is also, uh, you know, community enhancing and has a lot of other uh, consequences. But that's a typical systemic solution. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, that when you spoke to it earlier, how you're, you've moved away from studying and showing the parallels of Eastern philosophy, but you, you also highlighted how that original thinking of yours is kind of what pushed you in this direction of going towards ecology and assisting. Right, right. So as we conclude, I, we usually ask all our guests one question to kind of inspire the thinkers, artists, activists who are listening to you. Do you have any one mantra? It doesn't even have to be one. Any one mantra or um, slogan that you live by and it keeps you moving in the direction that you would like to uh, come to fruition? Yeah, I, I would say that uh, uh, I don't have a personal mantra that I, I could share with you, but uh, over the last few years, I have become more and more aware of the importance of community. And that's what I, I would like to, to end with. Mm. That when you talk about sustainability, sustainability, ecological sustainability, means living in such a way that we do not interfere with nature's inherent ability to sustain life. And when you look at how nature sustains life, you find that nature has sustained life for billions of years by creating and nurturing communities. Ecosystems are ecological communities and at all levels of life, uh, sustainability is embodied in communities. So mm -hmm. the most important thing we need to do is to, to uh, revitalize our communities. Secondly, uh, when you look at the uh, obstacles uh, <clears throat> against moving toward a sustainable future, you find that uh, we are under a constant onslaught of advertising coming to us from the corporate world, which tells us that happiness can be achieved only by buying certain products. <laughs> now, if we can show the corporate world the true happiness lies in human relationships, in other words, in community, that's the most effective counterdose to this excessive overconsumption. Mm. And a third reason why community is important, I would say, is that what we need today in terms of education is not just learning uh, to absorb new information, new ideas, that also is very important. But it has to be a transformative learning that, that transforms our, our very being. And in my experience, transformative learning is achieved most effectively in a learning community. And mm -hmm. especially when you discuss conceptual relationships, when you, which you do all the time in a systems approach, you discuss conceptual relationships and you experience human relationships at the same time. 
that is a very powerful tool for transformative learning. So, you know, to sum it up, community is extremely important today. Wow, that was very powerful. Um, as an educator, just uh, asking, when you say transformative learning, do you mean uh, transforming the worldview of the student? Um, the worldview and the values, yes. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Professor, for okay, your time. Okay, it was, it was a great pleasure, yeah. All the best to you. Thank you for your time and uh, hope you have a great day. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Philosophy of Now podcast. For more content and conversations like this, please visit the Roots Media website and keep listening.